0: Good afternoon. What day is it? Day three. Day four. Full day. Day three. Thank you. Uh, it's a good track when you good good uh, good thing when you start losing track, I guess. So. So, one of the first techniques that uh, we've been practicing with is um, opening to sounds. So, uh, when uh, you sit, you set up your posture and then you open up your ears. So that uh, sounds can come, and uh, this is a nice way of getting settled. Um, <clears throat> the instruction I usually give to people is to imagine that your ears are like microphones because a microphone doesn't uh, go after sounds. Microphones just are diaphragms that receive sound, and then um sounds can just uh, come through the ears. But if you've been listening closely to the Heart Sutra, there's no ear. And actually this is true, that if you uh, are really allowing sounds to come in and out, uh, ear is just a linguistic idea. It's a visualization, it's a picture thought, but you don't actually experience sound going in your ear. There's no ear. Just like the body, like we talk a lot about the body, but if you're actually tuned into sensations happening, they're not happening in your body. They're just happening in awareness. And then your mind superimposes onto this experience, a shape of the body and so on. And also, the sounds aren't out there. (laughs) And they're not in here. And it's hard to say actually where the listening happens. So the point of all this is um, that when you keep opening and opening and opening to sound, uh, you train in receptivity. And meditation practice is not about clearing thoughts away. Hopefully you've realized that that is a way to make you suffer. Meditation practice, uh, in the way we're practicing, is really learning about not interfering not interfering with what shows up so that we can clear a space for uh, creativity which we'll talk about in stage ten but right now we're only on ox stage number five and in this stage we're uh, um, allowing sounds to come in through the sense door of the ears so that we're just receptive to the movement of sound and then you might realize that that's exactly the same practice as mindfulness of breathing. In mindfulness of breathing, we're trusting that the body knows how to breathe. And the breath, which is called a vayu, is just wind. And it's coming in and out. And um, then listening and breathing are the same thing. And you might even start to feel um, that all of your pores are uh, ears. Imagine you dropped some LSD, and then you remembered I said that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or, uh, I find that when I, I really get into that zone of breathing and listening, that it actually feels like the breath is doing the listening. It's just there's breathing, listening, and they're not two separate techniques. And then, um, after five or ten minutes in the sitting practice, when this happens, uh, if some spaciousness arises, you can let go of that technique. So it's, you know, day three, and uh, we're starting to establish some shamatha, some calmness. And uh, when you start to feel calm in the meditative practice, uh, you should feel alert and uh, calm. -hmm. And when you can feel that happening, um, you can let go of breathing and listening. Mm -hmm. And just sit here. Mm -hmm. Don't meditate. Just sit. And then after a while, your habits will come, some scars will show up, and then you have to start all over again. Mm -hmm. Is my nose in line with my navel my falling forward, is my posture as bad as their posture? (laughs) (laughs) And partly the reason why we're paying so much attention to the posture is because uh, there's going to be times throughout the retreat where we just want to let go of our technique. Mm -hmm. And so every time you learn a technique, the purpose of the technique is to drop the last technique. So, some of you are feeling your breathing in your nostrils, and I encourage you. Uh, one way to feel a real calmness in your breathing when you pay attention to the nostrils is to feel the breath not inside your nostrils, but just at the aperture of your nostril. And uh, if you're if you're tuned in there you can actually feel the breath right on your upper lip. Um, If if you find it easy to feel your breathing in your chest and that's where you're noticing the breath, maybe instead of feeling it in the chest, uh, feel your breath also in the back of your chest. So you actually have more lungs in the back than in the front. And so see if you can feel the movement there in in the back just uh, somewhere around the rhomboids. And for those of you feeling your breath in your abdomen, um, instead of feeling your breath just like in the whole abdomen, see if you can tune into the breath uh, behind your navel, almost like between your navel and your spine. And the purpose of fine-tuning these locations is um, Because when you fine-tune the location, there's less sensation there. Like if you breathe in your nostrils, there's lots of sensation there. But if you feel the breath just outside your nostrils, there's not actually that much sensation. And so this is what we're looking for as the calmness starts to develop. We want to see that as your breath gets calmer calmer and calmer and calmer and calmer and calmer, the mind also gets calmer and calmer and calmer and calmer and calmer. Mm -hmm. And then, as soon as your attention gets distracted, your breath gets coarse again. Which is great, because you should thank your breath. Oh, Thank you for getting coarse again, because then you can find it. Imagine if it didn't get coarse again, you'd just you'd never be able to find your way home. So the breath gets coarse again. And I, this is total bullshit. I'm making this up because I don't know what I'm talking about. But my theory, my theory about this is that the reason for this is because when your mind gets busy, you need more air. Your brain literally needs more oxygen. So this is an interesting thing to watch is that, that when you get calmer and calmer and calmer, the distinction between in breathing and out breathing starts to fade away and then you don't have to keep staying with your breath just be open to the experience and then your attention will pick some neurotic thing you love and then you'll uh, have to find the breath again but it's easy because your breath gets deep again so um, the point of uh, refining where you're noticing your breathing is because over time you really want, uh, your, uh, sensations, uh, to, to decrease, to get finer. So the other, th- so that's just a review. And, and the other thing I just wanted to mention, um, is, uh, to please not forget when you're sitting here, um, and you're noticing these things that, um, not really for you. (laughs) One of the reasons you should really sit still when you're practicing is because it's really good for the person next to you. And one of the reasons when uh, uh, you eat that you should eat mindfully is because it's really good for everyone else at the table. We support each other's practice because our life is shared, you know. Our meals are shared, yes. And the space is shared, yes. But our bodies are also shared, you know. Our breathing is shared. We're all inhaling and exhaling the same air. Don't think about that too much. (laughs) But it's important to let in this way that our practice is shared together. It's so important in our era, you know. Climate change is a, not a problem of global warming. The root of climate change is that it's a consumption problem. So when we all feel this uh, shared practice and we de-accelerate uh, together, then we're uh, part of a greater political practice. Which is remembering uh, that this is a shared life. And that we don't need so much. Can you feel that every day? Like, you don't really need so much. And I hope that this will impact all of us in a way where we'll feel. Wow, when I go home, I don't need so much. And nothing is separate. And everything is political. Everything. Because uh, you can't separate out forests over here, practice over here, economy over there. It's all interconnected. So uh, this is a reminder then to to please uh, wake up to one another here. Especially if uh, being with other people uh, triggers you. Sometimes people come on retreat, and I think I said this the other day, but they come on retreat and it's just like school again. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like all the old patterns of uh, who has their locker next to whom. (laughs) So uh, just watch that. So we're on ox-herding picture number five. Uh, Taming the Ox. Uh, Again, all these uh, images will go up in the main building. Um, I'm going to read the poem. The whip and tether cannot be put aside, or the ox will wander into mud-filled swamps. Did anybody see the ox go into the swamp? This afternoon, I opened my eyes a couple times, and there were a lot of swamp dwellers. <laughs> they look like this. <laughs> when patiently trained to trust, it becomes gentle, becomes gentle and can be unfettered then freely it follows your way. I would say freely it follows its own way. So the two phrases I want to explore are uh, whip and tether and freely it follows its own way. So when you relax and you're receptive, and you're not interfering with what's showing up. um, There's a a process of being able to come back again. Uh, In Sanskrit, the word for this is smrti, which is a verb, uh, which means to remember. And the word in uh, Pali is sati, which is also uh, to come back, to remember. And this is the word that we're translating as mindfulness. It's a verb. And it means to to come back again. I've been thinking a little bit on this retreat because um, uh, my my partner Karina tells me that uh, my memory is getting really bad. (laughs) How come you're laughing? Does everybody's partner tell them this? (laughs) I guess so. Anyways. So, I've been uh, wondering lately, uh, Actually, I've been been wondering on this retreat a little bit sometimes and I've been sitting, I've been wondering, this practice must be really good for memory. Because if mindfulness is being able to come back again, it's being able to remember uh, the present moment again. So, I would think that mindfulness must be uh, good for memory loss. And I would think that mindfulness is probably like a preventative medicine for the memory loss that's likely to happen when we hit our 70s and 80s, 40s. <laughs> so in a way, a mindfulness is kind of a memory function. right? And I would say not just to remember, literally remember to come back again, but also it's to remember what's important. So any of you who want to do a Ph.D. on this subject, uh, if you want to do a research project and you're at university, I know some of you are involved in academia, um, if you just put the word mindfulness in your research, it will attract research money. This is a true, true thing right now, in Europe especially. Uh, just say any th- mindfulness and something, and you will uh, your research will be fully funded. <laughs> this is true. So what we're doing when we come back is we're settling a body, speech, and mind. These are like Russian dolls. You know. So as we settle the body, the internal chatter uh, starts to settle. The mind starts to settle. And if the body is not settling, uh, then the breathing can't settle. And if the breathing can't settle, the speech can't settle. They're all stacked up in each other. So uh, if your uh, respiration uh, uh, is, uh, is caught, you need to really work with sound. Like if you're pregnant, for example. If you're pregnant, you can't really breathe naturally, so I'm told. And you won't again for 20 years, actually. (laughs) But more on that later. So, um, the mind and the breath are mirrors of one another. They're like two fish that swim in tandem. If you look in the river, fish swim perfectly in tandem. And so, when the mind's agitated, the breath is agitated. And when the breath is agitated, the mind is agitated. And both of these influence speech. The chattering of the ox. And breathing is, is so tied into the prana system. It's so tied into to the, the nervous system and how we speak and the language system. You can't separate any of these. So I encourage you to really like... I know everybody's hearing the technique. But really try to embody this. Which is, what's it like when you sit to trust so much that your body can breathe that um, it just settles into a rhythm that's not really sculpted by you? It's just just exactly the same thing the natural world's doing right now. Mm -hmm. So in each zone, body, speech, mind, they're not really separate things. You want to measure that they have this balance between laxity and excitation. In the yoga tradition, we say say a balance between astira steadiness and uh, sukha, which is uh, it's actually where you get the word sugar. Can you can you pronounce sugar in French? Sugar. No, in sugar. French. <laughs> Yeah It doesn't sound like suka. It's the same thing. There's an academic joke about this, which is uh, too much suka causes truth decay. <laughs> so you don't want things to be too sweet, or you just like become uh, in California, we call them bliss bunnies. People just so just always trying to find the sweet. Uh, you also need the alertness. But if you have too much alertness and there's no sweetness, uh, you get a little bit uh, stiff. We don't have a word for that, but if that happens for you, you'll bang your head on the door. Uh, every, every night, actually, I go and I've been lowering the threshold when you're sleeping, <laughs> just to really keep you awake. Uh, I've counted six so far. <laughs> There's a yoga technique um, called uh, nyasa, where you uh, take um, a mantra. First you have a bath, first you bathe. So uh, you go to the river and you have a bath, you bathe. Uh, So you're uh, pure, clean. And uh, then you take a mantra uh, and you put it on your uh, on your fingertips, different mantras. So uh, maybe you do like the bodhisattva vows, or maybe you do the mantra we've been chanting in the morning, gate, gate, paragate. Um, or maybe you just take something like uh, some practice you're working on, and uh, you put the mantras on your fingertips, and um, and then you place them in different parts of your body. So maybe uh, you put one in your armpit. Maybe you put one in your heart. Maybe there's like an insight you've had that you can articulate on a fingertip and you swallow it. And, and then you meditate on where the saliva goes. And uh, this is... Um, Well, tattooing is still kind of hip, I think. Close? Still hip to tattoo? Yeah. Uh, But this is internal tattooing. Um, So it's like uh, you turn something important into a deity, and then you put it inside your body. And then you visualize your whole body uh, covered in uh, protector deities, like ticks or something. And um, then when you have a good posture, you consecrate the whole pattern. So you experience your body as a very sacred. And um, when you make something sacred, it's like like meeting something for the first time. You know when you meet someone for the first time, it's like... (laughs) And this is where the the term uh, in popular yoga that you hear a lot, vinyasa, comes from. So, uh, nyasa is to take these uh, insights, put them in the body. And the word v is an intensifier. So, uh, v means a special or uh, intense. It also means a counter. So, like, uh, for example... um, um vip, vipassana. A pasha is an I, and V means to go in deeper. So uh, or pasa in Pali. So that's why we translate it as insight sometimes. It's like not just to look at something, but like to really look at something. And um when you uh, do uh Uh, Vinyasa, it means uh, to look deeply at how insight is actually, uh, wisdom is actually in our body. Mostly nowadays it means sweating in a hot room and jumping back (laughs) for for upward dog. Uh, But what it means is that when you look closely at something, you see that everything has a side and a counter side. Remember the poem yesterday of the leaf falling? A side, a counter side. Or like when you practice yoga asana, every external rotation is always balanced with an internal rotation. And they never know, nothing ever wins. It's always like dialing in something. So this is what we're noticing in our minds, is that every time there's some clinging or some reactivity. Uh, the first thing that shows up is this thought-counter-thought. I like this, I don't like this. And vinyasa is the, the wisdom of looking more closely at that experience. Using your whole body. So, uh, vinyasa is also a parenting You make a move, you see if it works, you get some feedback, and then you make another move. Have you heard of this thing called mindful parenting? Makes me crazy. You're supposed to be like a really good parent and a really good lover and really good at your job. And now you also have to be mindful. It's like very oppressive, I think. Mindful parenting doesn't mean like you're playing with your kid, like you're playing Lego or something. Because I think that's what all parents do in Denmark, right? You just play Lego with your kid. It's like now pick up the red piece and let's. Oh, too fast. Now let's just be more mindful. Do you feel how you're putting the pieces together? What it what, what this practice means is it's not like. It's not like you're slow as you are on this retreat. Mindful parenting means you make a move, you notice the effect, and you don't hold on to it. Your kid does something stupid, you say something stupid, and then you're like, Oh God, that was stupid. And then you you make another move. Do do you see what I mean? It's just kind of like you're being yourself. And sometimes we're being ourselves and the action that we take isn't the right action. So we have to come back to the present and let go and try again. So this is what we mean by practice. Maybe you're sitting here and the working with the breath just not working with for a while. So then you just go to sound. Or maybe you drop the technique for a while. You experiment. You don't get stuck in one perspective. So This section of the ox herding, I think we took a detour there, but this section of the (laughs) ox herding is basically saying, like now you're getting clear about how your mind works. You can see that it works in binary opposites. Like and dislike. And how you flip back and forth. I want to lean into this, I want to lean away from that. You start to see that there's triggers that bring up aversion and clinging, or fear, or greed. And all this stuff arises, and you still don't know why you keep doing it, but you have a hard time controlling it. And that's what this this stage is. You're seeing the triggers, you're seeing how the body can release these patterns, but you keep doing it. Is anybody connect with this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I'm beyond that now. I'm just like pure empathy. Mm-hmm. And what I would add to this is that this is the stage of the ox herding practice where you begin to develop some more empathy for yourself. And more empathy for other people, because you see that everyone's doing the best that they can. That, like, a lot of the annoying things about other people are not really not their fault. And even though they might be trying to work with it, the habits have so much momentum. And so we should stop worrying about other people's habits so much. And then there's less struggling. And also, the hard part of this stage is that we see that this is going to be a lot of work. (laughs) That this is slow day-by-day work. And it's not about being in a zombie trance or being a bliss bunny. (laughs) It's about having a a closer intimacy with our lives. And that's the realest compassion. That there could ever be is that vow that you can make. That uh, this is really hard, but actually, uh, there's no turning back now. I mean, also you got to ride here with somebody, and you, there's no way you can get home anyways. <laughs> I'm gonna swim away. <laughs> So, the main problem of this stage is that, if we let go of our commitment, we fall so easily back into the old addictions. And then we get to the sixth stage. Um, It's called Riding the Ox Home. I don't know if anybody can see that, but the ox is massive. And there's someone uh, sitting on the ox uh, playing a flute. Can everybody uh, see that? Mm. And the poem says, uh, Following the winding road, you ride the ox home. The sound of your rustic flute pervades the evening haze. Each note, each song, feeling unbounded. And the last line I really love. Beyond lips and mouth. So, uh, one detail here is that the The sound of the flute is rustic. Whenever I read it, I always think rusty. Like the blues. Uh, It's earthy. And the sound of the music that comes from our practice, uh, it's not so poppy. It's earthy, and it has in it uh, the flavor of some uh, suffering, loss, and all the shit that we're struggling with. And also, uh, the road home, we're told in this poem, is windy. But where are we going? Where's that road home going? Because I think in stage six we start to realize the home that's being referred to is actually not separate from you. That home is actually this. And it's beyond lips and mouth. So there's a famous story that uh, <clears throat> this is referring to, which is um, the Mahayana story of uh, Mahakashyapa. So uh, one day the Buddha was on Vulture's Peak uh, and uh, the Sangha was gathered around, uh, just like this, and the Buddha picked up a flower and twirled it. And um, as he was twirling it, uh, he started smiling, and then across from him, there was a student named Mahakasyapa who also smiled. Um, Robert Aitken, in his commentary on this story, says that in the Chinese version of the story, um. The, the word that's used to describe mahakashyapa's face is, uh, his face cracked. <laughs> Which might mean, he cracked up. <laughs> so simple, no explanations, no words, and no sutras. Uh, maybe it's a little bit like when you're sitting and you crack up. Because you see how absurd... The whole thing is. And if you haven't had that sitting yet, wait till you bump your head. <laughs> so uh, they say that that story is the beginning of Zen practice, is uh, teachings that have nothing to do with the scriptures have nothing to do with words. The Buddha picks up a flower, and in his appreciation of the flower, Mahakashyapa just gets it. And they both smile. Isn't that a lovely story? No words, nothing. It's so hard to trust in that, though, isn't it? We miss it all the time it's happening. How many times has someone just smiled at you? Or a flower appeared this retreat? But we miss it. Because the first thing we think is, what does it have to do with me? <laughs> <laughs> We're all seeking a legitimacy all the time. And part of this practice is to trust something that's um, deeper, than our personality. And, not to name it, just to start to have a trust and a relationship with what's deeper than um, the authority that you're craving. (coughs) There's no authority. There's just my life. And your life. And when the Buddha picks up the flower, um, the Buddha's not giving transmission to Mahakashipa, which is always how the commentaries say. In that moment, the Buddha's giving transmission. But in, in that moment, uh, they're smiling together, and the Buddha's not transmitting anything to Mahakashipa. Life is just transmitting life. Flower is offering itself. Time is transmitting time. I think about this a lot when I see the altar, you know. The flowers are transmitting, aren't they? Kuan Yin's transmitting. And the candle is like working so hard, burning its body for us. So, what's the takeaway? Uh, the takeaway is that um, when you're present, the distractions just take care of themselves. Uh, don't worry about them so much. When you connect uh, right here with the present moment, the distractions just take care of themselves. Uh, don't stay so focused on the content of what's in your attention. If you just stay connected to the present, all that stuff will just take care of itself. And when you connect with what's right here in the present, uh, you connect with love. You can feel that river. And then you start to see that there's nothing that's not meditation. Everything is meditative practice. Just like there's nothing you can do with your body that's not a yoga posture. Everything you do is a yoga posture. Everything we do is practice. So these are the last stages of the ox-herding pictures, that remind us that um, the ox is so close, our life is right here, it's easy to miss, and most importantly, that uh, you've got to keep staying connected. Because the habit energies are so strong. And the moral of that is, that means you can't turn back. No. How could you turn back? What are you going to go to? Consuming and producing? So everything's practice. Thank you.